Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction. On this episode of SoftBank's Blurry Vision, we'll be talking about what we lost in the hype. Over the last few episodes, I've outlined the story so far of the SoftBank Vision Fund, $100 billion which was raised, supposedly, to revolutionise the world and accelerate the deployment of all of this glorious new technology. And I've discussed how a lot of this money has been ploughed into unsustainable or actively harmful business models, into silly ideas that never had a prayer of working, and into fintech companies that either have or enable sketchy accounting practices that could well be inflating yet another financial bubble. I have discussed how the same common features, avoiding regulations, aggressively driving competitors out of business, and claiming to be a technology company that can grow like a technology company. We see them across many of the Vision Fund's major investments. I hope I've convinced you that any company that the Vision Fund invests in is worth at the very least a second look, and that it's always worth asking what the real innovative technology behind a tech company actually is. I hope I've convinced you that we're witnessing a bubble bursting right now in the midst of the pandemic, as these companies continue to fail. And I hope I've convinced you that just because someone has billions of dollars and has succeeded in the past, it certainly doesn't prevent them from blowing up bubbles and wasting all of that money. Now, in some ways, the game now appears to be up for the SoftBank Vision Fund. In the last quarter of 2019, the profits made by SoftBank the company were wiped out by losses at the Vision Fund. Naturally, the Vision Fund has been hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic as many of its businesses have folded. While there were plans as late as summer 2019 to create a second round of SoftBank Vision funding, another $100 billion, those plans look all but certain to be shelved in light of the global economic depression. SoftBank the company will probably survive in some form or another, and perhaps in 10 to 15 years when the market reaches the height of irrational exuberance again, Masayoshi Son might get involved once more in whatever the bubble is for that particular generation of investors. But at least for this round, the Vision Fund is winding down, its bets made, and it seems more likely to be remembered as a strange experiment at the height of this exuberance around tech that has ultimately failed, rather than as the start of a thousand-year plan for SoftBank to achieve world domination, as you might have believed if you were reading Masayoshi's slides. But beyond this just being a story of wild excess and terrible decision-making in Silicon Valley, Beyond us just getting to laugh about robots that can't make pizza and erratic CEOs with egos the size of a planet. Why should you care about this? After all, if SoftBank and the Saudis and the UAE want to blow a whole load of money on these bad bets, what does it mean to you and me? Well, first off I want to point out that irrational exuberance and bubbles, like the one that SoftBank has been inflating, hurt a lot of people when they pop. We might not mind if Masayoshi Son or the Saudis end up losing a fortune. I'm kind of inclined to agree with that argument. But it inflates all of this unsustainable economic activity, and somehow, the CEOs and founders always seem to escape. If not with billions, then at least with millions. But the employees at these companies, who sometimes get paid in stock options that end up being worthless, well, they lose out. They've then put a great deal of their careers into something that was always unsustainable and unlikely to work out. When WeWork collapsed, it was so insolvent that it couldn't even make people redundant because it couldn't pay them any severance money. It had to wait on a cash bailout deal before it could even fire people. All this while it was still planning to give founder Adam Neumann nearly $2 billion. We know that the SoftBank Vision Fund encourages SoftBank employees to invest in it. If it goes under, then, should the employees really pay for Masayoshi Son's bad approach to investing? Another major reason, of course, depends on how cynical you feel about these bubble tactics. After all, the aim of these private companies backed by SoftBank is to eventually go public. When SoftBank pumps money into these companies, it is giving them a nominal value. It's associating them with this tech hype. If a company gets a billion in cash from SoftBank, then it must be worth 10 billion or 20 billion. Not because of any underlying business case for its technology, but because it has attracted so much cash. At its very worst, this is a confidence game, aimed to inflate the value of these companies so that investors will buy SoftBank's stake back at a profit. We have already talked about how the Vision Fund is backed by a great deal of debt, as many of SoftBank's investments are. These debt instruments can be structured like bonds that promise to pay a profit, but they are ultimately debt. 
So through a certain lens, SoftBank's main business model with the Vision Fund is to pump billions of borrowed money into private companies, which swells their valuation, and then to sell their stock on when the company goes public so that SoftBank won't foot the bill if they collapse. In the case of Wirecard, they did this with the company despite allegations of fraud surrounding the company. It would have worked in the case of WeWork if its IPO filing wasn't so absurd that most investors were turned off straight away. If they'd bought up that stock, then SoftBank might have made a profit. There will always be people in the investment world whose model is, at core, something like pump and dump. They have no interest in the underlying value of the company or the share that they're getting involved in, but instead they just want to inflate the value of it so that they can sell on their stake at a profit when the time comes and get out just before the crash. So if you're feeling charitable, Son is a dreamer who doesn't mind making losing bets. But if you're feeling uncharitable, then you can argue that this is the real game here, and it's the kind of game that can work out very well for a few people until the music stops. The third major reason, which I think we covered extensively in the episodes on Uber and WeWork specifically, is how the business models for these companies work. They claim to be innovative, they paint fanciful narratives about changing the world and indulge in techno-hype in order to inflate their share prices and attract financing. SoftBank, of course, never has any motivation to deflate the hype in companies once they've backed them. But in reality, what they really offer to society is this very predatory business model. It's often been commented that the first generation of very successful tech companies, they can offer you things for free because you are the product. Facebook and Google offer their services for free, and in exchange they profit from the information that they gather about you in the mechanism of surveillance capitalism. They lure you in for free, and you pay for it later. But in this second generation of tech companies, the ones that are trying to emulate the Facebooks and the Googles, we're also getting things initially cheaply, or in a heavily subsidised way, whether they're loss-making taxi rides, loss-making office buildings, in the hope that they can make you pay for it later once a monopoly is established. Quoting now from Vice, they wrote, quote, a 2018 study by University of California researchers Martin Kenny and John Zisman maps out the same period and explains that the explosion of the number of startups, the proliferation of unicorns, which are startups valued at more than a billion dollars when they go public, and the unprofitability of a majority of unicorns when hitting the public market, are a consequence of them each trying to ignite the winner-take-all dynamics through rapid expansion, characterised by breakneck and almost invariably money-losing growth, often with no discernible path to profitability. If this fails, SoftBank can always hope to sell its stake on at a higher valuation. But when these businesses do eventually fail, and we may see this start to happen with Uber, as it's already happened with WeWork, they leave this scorched earth in their wake. Gig economy employees who have very few rights end up working excessive hours for little pay, or barely any hours at all, or who end up enticed in by the promise of high wages that don't take into account the repayments on their cars. All the while, smaller, profitable businesses are driven out and eaten alive by the debt-financed VC engines like Uber and WeWork, or Oyo in the case of the hotel industry. The result is that the independent contractors in these companies no longer have any choice about who to work for, or what conditions they have to work under, as the traditional industry, for all of its flaws, has been destroyed. It's quite amazing that companies can be wildly unprofitable, terrible for their workers, destructive of existing industries, and bad for society in general. Again, as Vice put it, quote, We do not have companies like Uber and WeWork because they're efficient or innovative, or even because we want to. We have them because they're being subsidised by venture capital. And here's what we have to show for it. An underclass of gig workers, increased traffic congestion and urban pollution, the global suppression of labour standards and rights, hollowed out public transportation and taxi businesses across the world, and the instability that will come when Uber and WeWork collapse as SoftBank and other investors get tired of losing money from these creatively unprofitable businesses. End quote. The net impact of many of these businesses focused on disruption as a goal is that it's made things worse for nearly everyone, except that we have this totally unsustainable expectation that things should be available swiftly and on demand. In the Silicon Valley mould, then, tech isn't about creating. It's not about allowing people to do stuff they couldn't already do. But instead, it's now more and more become, in these SoftBank companies, about coming in, gutting an industry that may have had its issues but was working before, 
and throwing a whole bunch of people out of work. These companies are not really using technology to improve people's lives, as we know that technology can do when it's deployed well and correctly. But instead, they're these engines of inequality using people's love of tech and infatuation with the future as a veneer to try and smash and grab value from various different industries that used to employ people in a slightly more sustainable way. Of course, another reason to be mad about this SoftBank Vision Fund is that it represents a huge waste of potential. A huge, huge waste of potential. Let's first look at the most obvious thing, the money. $100 billion over the course of five years in the SoftBank Vision Fund. The vast majority of which, you have to argue, has been wasted. The UN Rapporteur on Poverty, Philip Alston, pointed out that even by the paltry standards of the current definition of extreme poverty in the world, 700 million people live on less than $1.90 a day. The SoftBank Vision Fund alone could have lifted nearly 30 million people out of poverty across the five years that it has existed. The International Food Policy Research Institute came up with a series of estimates for how much funding would be required to end world hunger. Now this is obviously extremely difficult and subtle to model, and you can end up with a huge range of estimates depending on how you define world hunger and also how you define eradication. With all of these economic estimates, you know there's plenty of ways to come up with different figures. But one of their central estimates was that you could make a very serious dent in the problem for $11 billion a year. So the SoftBank Vision Fund money, over the last five years, could have prevented millions from going hungry or starving to death. Now you might say, okay, that's charity. You're not going to be able to persuade the Saudis and the SoftBank to invest in something that won't provide any kind of economic return. And yet the IFPRI also points out that if you were to eradicate world hunger, it would more than pay for itself. The estimated economic benefit from doing so would be as much as $276 billion. They note dryly that expressing it in these terms is useful for advocacy and policy prioritisation. In other words, if you're living in a society where people can only make decisions based on comparing numbers expressed in dollars, it might be worth pointing out that alleviating world hunger is very valuable. The surprise being, of course, that people who aren't malnourished lead healthier lives, and they're also more productive workers, if that's all you care about. But of course, there's also substantially less suffering involved. Compare the $100 billion that SoftBank gathered up for its vision fund to the investment of other major organisations. The World Health Organisation, much maligned lately, our first line of defence against global pandemics, that gets around $3 billion a year. The SoftBank Vision Fund, then, could have fully funded the World Health Organization for 30 years. For 5 to $6 billion, less than was ploughed into WeWork, you could eradicate polio, according to the WHO's plan of action on the same from 2013. Now, again, you're going to say, the SoftBank Vision Fund is supposed to make money, it's supposed to be an investment instrument to make money, you've said that it's debt and bonds and so on, and that the Saudis and the UAE are obviously expecting a fancy return. And that's true. That's that's why it was able to generate this much money. But the simple fact is that they ended up burning most of the money anyway. It's ended up being a colossal waste and misallocation of resources. So if we're talking about ways that you can allocate resources, I feel that it's not unjust to compare how things have been done with how they could have been done. I feel that it's not unfair to say, here's what we could have had if we were willing to allocate our resources in a different way. The fact that people wouldn't choose to do so is sort of beside the point when they could choose to do so if they wanted to. Take any issue that you care about. The world's governments combined, according to the IEA, invest around $3 billion a year in renewable energy research and development, $4 billion a year in nuclear, $1 billion a year in energy storage. Since part of the motivation for the Saudis and the UAE to invest in SoftBank's vision fund is supposedly a desire to diversify away from oil and fossil fuels, surely it would make sense to be invested in their replacements. And here, the argument about, oh, it's not a charity, completely breaks down, because, after all, you would expect to make a profit if you're investing in R&D for renewables. The renewable energy industry is growing incredibly quickly. When we look at what's happened over the course of the pandemic, the fossil fuel company prices have fallen to the floor, while the renewable energy companies, by and large, even though their activities have been disrupted, 
many of their share prices have stayed quite high or in some cases bounce back to where they were. In other cases, they are higher than they were previously. I know this is the case in uh, Allstead, for example, where these companies have been extremely resilient during the global economic downturn that has followed the pandemic because people have optimism about the future. So it's obviously a growing industry and you would make money doing it. Of course, it's not like there's a lack of solar resource in Saudi Arabia. You would need to be incredibly ambitious to do it, but if you were to hypothetically blanket the desert in solar panels, it could generate energy equivalent to the entire proven oil reserves of Saudi Arabia in just two years. Yet the Saudis themselves have been on off about the possibilities of solar power, promising much, setting grandiose and ambitious targets, but ultimately seldom delivering. In fact, SoftBank has been involved in one of these grandiose promises that didn't end up amounting to very much, and I reported on it to Singularity Hub, the website I used to write for. Back in March 2018, they announced, to great fanfare, what would have been the largest solar project in history, 200 gigawatts of solar panels in the desert. This was a collaboration between SoftBank and Saudi Arabia, much like the Vision Fund. Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi leader, described it as a huge step in human history. The project was due to start with a $1 billion investment from SoftBank and would end as a $200 billion, 200 gigawatts behemoth by 2030. By comparison, at the time, the installed solar capacity across the entire world was only 300 gigawatts. So it would have constituted two-thirds of the entire solar capacity across the world in one single mega-project. At the time, there was some scepticism given how light on actual details the announcement of the project was, and the fact that the only evidence for its existence was a memorandum of understanding, which essentially doesn't guarantee anything at all. Not to mention the fact that both the Saudi government and SoftBank had previously bombastically promised to invest massively in solar power, before quietly cancelling the projects later on. The sceptics proved to be right, and by October, the project had been quietly shelved without any apparent work happening on it at all. You have to question whether the whole thing wasn't just an exercise in reputation laundering, given how little serious effort was actually invested in it before the announcement was made, and coming up with details for a plan of how to do this mega solar project. After all, it's not a bad strategy to loudly announce that you're going to do something bold, visionary, or charitable, get all of the good PR and press and headlines from that, and then quietly row back on the promise later, knowing that this will create far fewer bombastic or dramatic headlines. By the way, everyone who's listening to this is going to get a free car. I'll work out the details later. I regret giving the announced project the credibility that I did in my report back in 2018, even though I did manage to finish on a very much wait-and-see-what-happens note. The Wall Street Journal in 2019 reported that the 220 gigawatts SoftBank had suggested could be built across India and Saudi Arabia, just 3 gigawatts of deals have actually existed, maybe just 1.2% of the total amount, and substantially less than that was under construction. And as far as the SoftBank Vision Fund goes, the only energy-related investment I could find, and I dug through them all, was $110 million in energy storage company Energy Vault. In other words, despite all of the rhetoric and bombast about investing in the future of the world, and despite the willingness to appear to invest in solar, less than 0.1% of the Vision Fund has gone towards the energy transition, moving away from fossil fuels to renewables, nuclear and storage. They spent multiple times that on robots delivering pizza. This is part of a broader trend. And in some ways, it's understandable, because it is a different kind of investment. If you spend money on a solar farm, you might well extract a nice little profit out of it. Within a few years, the electricity you sell will have paid back the initial costs of construction, and from there, you might well earn a few percentage every year on your initial project, a, a tidy margin. But you won't see the sort of returns that a lot of venture capitalists are looking for. You're unlikely, for example, to invest in a solar farm that will suddenly be worth 10 times or 100 times more than your initial investment. That's the nature of these infrastructure projects. If you choose, design and operate it well, you might get a X percent a year return, but that's never going to really be a doubling or a tripling of your initial investment. So you can argue that it's inevitable that an entity like the Vision Fund, which is essentially a gambling operation that's hoping to win big on a few of its bets, is not really going to be geared towards more steady and sensible investments, and will instead be far more liable to plough its money into ideas that promise explosive growth, even if they do turn out to fail in the end. 
That's the whole point about these tech companies. We have seen that tech companies, if they catch on, can genuinely explode in growth to much, much faster and much, much further and much larger heights than they were initially. This is the industry where you can invest a few dollars in 1999 and then have it worth millions years later. You can criticise doing this as a greedy or reckless way of spending money, and of course it's ridiculously wasteful to plough millions into Zoom Pizza or WeWork based on a 15-minute chat you had with the owner. But it is at least a strategy that it explains why the Vision Fund wouldn't invest in technology that is more obviously beneficial to humanity. But this line of argument obviously doesn't explain why the Vision Fund wouldn't invest in early-stage companies that are developing new kinds of solar panel or new kinds of battery. There are dozens of such projects that are found in university labs which struggle to be spun out into companies which SoftBank could invest in. Imagine you have all of the investment in the product that turns out to be the next lithium-ion battery, or the coating that you can apply to solar panels to make them twice as efficient. Now that's the sort of VC investment that genuinely could explode in value when it took off. Yet SoftBank only actually invested 0.1% of its $100 billion into this type of project. Into what you might call a real, genuine technological breakthrough, rather than just an app that is trying to disrupt some industry or other. And this is indeed part of a broader trend in venture capital more generally, beyond SoftBank. Elizabeth McBride wrote a great article on this in the MIT Tech Review back in June 2020. It's titled, Why Venture Capital Doesn't Build the Things We Really Need, and the subtitle is The funding model that made Silicon Valley a global tech hub excels at creating a certain kind of innovation, but the pandemic has exposed its broader failures. In the article, McBride notes that the whole VC industry has grown rapidly over the last few years. In 2005, VC investments in the US were $170 billion, but by 2019 this had swelled to $444 billion. McBride writes, quote, Venture capitalists sell themselves as the top of the heap in Silicon Valley. They are the talent spotters, the cowboys, the risk takers. They support people willing to buck the system, and they say deserve to be richly rewarded and lightly taxed for doing so. This image, however, doesn't strictly match the history of the valley, because it was the system that got everything started. After Sputnik launched the space race, the federal government poured money into silicon chip companies. Historian Margaret O'Mara documents this well in her book The Code. In the early 1960s, the US government spent more on R&D than the rest of the world combined. While that firehose of cash flowed, the first venture capitalists found many winners to bankroll. End quote. Of course, nearly everyone listening to this probably knows that the internet originally rose out of the US military as DARPANET from the Defense Advanced Project Research Agency, and that the World Wide Web and many file transfer protocols that formed the earlier versions of the internet arose from researchers in CERN and other universities who were looking to exchange datasets and research with each other, long before there was a Silicon Valley that got involved in these projects. Back to McBride again. She says, quote, The link to government is still very much there in today's technology companies. Google's early work came out of the Clinton-era digital libraries project at Stanford, and the CIA was Palantir's first customer in 2003, and it's only one until 2008. Omara says that in fact there isn't anything wrong with tech companies being built through US research dollars. She argues that the most important decision of that era was for the government to pour money in without exerting too much control. But she adds that a mythology has grown up that focuses on lone heroes and rule breakers, rather than the underlying reasons for a company's or technology's success. Hooray for the internet that it's still cranking, she says, but you did not do this by yourself. End quote. And this is not to say that there is no role for the private sector in innovation. Instead, it's simply to point out that what a lot of companies do, and get most of the credit for, and make profit for, is commercialising Blue Sky's research that originally came from the public sector. Smartphones are a ubiquitous, multi-billion dollar industry. For most of their apps to function, they rely on code that was developed by universities and researchers, exchanging information over the internet which was developed by researchers, using GPS and satellites which were pioneered by the military. Even the touchscreen that the phones rely on was originally invented by the Royal Radar Research Unit in the UK, which was another arm of military research. What companies like Apple have done is essentially, and obviously rather well, brought together all of these technologies into something that's very commercially successful. I don't say this to diminish the skill of what they've done, or even the value of the marketing that surrounds something like an iPhone. But there's this general, extremely unfair perception that government operations are wasteful, 
and the private sector is invariably sleek and efficient, especially when it comes to Silicon Valley and the tech sector. I hope, if nothing else, that this series has convinced you that this isn't always true, because we've seen lots of examples here of Silicon Valley and the tech sector being wildly inefficient and bad at coming up with these basic innovations that will really drive things forward. It reminds me of a quote by Buckminster Fuller, who, who said, effectively, of this, that the most productive thing that people could do would be to be liberated from their nine-to-five jobs and be allowed to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were interested in in the first place. And that way, people would all be working on their passion projects. And, you know, all of these languages, all of these internet communities that have developed, everything that has been done basically out of passion or curiosity, so much of modern-day uh, technology and science depends almost entirely on people researching things for these reasons, and not with any view to eventual profit. The private sector then comes in and commercialises the original ideas, and take all the credit for establishing this innovation, when it couldn't technically happen at all without that blue skies research that is initially there in the first place. So you have to look at the innovation landscape and understand that innovation, that the pure development of technology, has seldom come from venture capitalists pouring money into projects with an eye to near-term profitability. How can something structured like the SoftBank Vision Fund really do what Masayoshi Son says that it's going to do? He's talking about establishing some glorious futuristic world where robots talk to humans and all of our problems of longevity and sadness are solved. How can you do that if you need to return money to investors in five years' time? Unless the solution basically already exists and just needs to be commercialised, you're not going to be able to do it. Now, military innovations, for example, they arise not because you're looking for profit, but because you're trying to solve a practical problem. Sure, it's helpful if it can be done at a low cost, but the main point is that you're trying to solve the problem. And a lot of these primary research innovations do arise out of curiosity or with no conception of how they'll ever make money. When Benjamin Franklin was asked about what could be done with electricity as he experimented with it, he supposedly said, what use is a newborn babe? And of course, building a massive particle collider to probe particle physics struck no one as a particularly profitable operation. But in the course of solving problems surrounding that, a great deal of the internet and the World Wide Web was developed. Solar panels are another great example of the relevant roles that the public and private sector have often played. The initial effects of solar photovoltaics, the idea that light falling on certain materials would generate a voltage, this was discovered back in the 1800s by a guy called Becquerel, when he was 19 and fiddling about in his father's research laboratory. Solar panels first found their niche in satellites. Recently, as prices have come down, we've seen the incredible power of market forces, which have caused the price of solar panels to plummet by 90% in the course of a decade until they're now competitive with fossil fuels across much of the planet. The private sector, alongside lots of university researchers, have proved very good at making efficiency breakthroughs, and they've had quite a bit of funding to do it, because the path to profit has been clear. And indeed, this incredible research and development effort is a big part of the reason why I think we're going to see fossil fuels continue to die out of our electricity supply in the next few decades. Part of the irony here is that solar photovoltaics, alongside other revolutionary inventions like the transistor, were worked on quite substantially at Bell Labs. This was a private company and laboratory that just had a truly stunning wealth of developments behind it, something like 12 Nobel Prizes awarded for work that took place there at one time or another. This is the sort of research ecosystem that the SoftBank Vision Fund kind of dreams it could create if it really wants to generate the future. This is the kind of research ecosystem that genuinely generates futuristic technologies. But seeking near-term profits, private companies have moved away from investing in the type of blue-sky researches that was done at Bell Labs. After the 1980s, when its parent company lost its monopoly, and by the way, that monopoly was part of the reason they were practically able to fund themselves like a government and just pour money into various different projects, the labs have shrunk in funding and in size over recent years, with many people moving on from the companies. A Nature Materials editorial back in 2006 pointed this out. It said, quote, To state that companies in the technology sector do not invest enough money in research and development would be wrong. According to their annual reports, IBM spends about $6 billion, Hitachi $3.4 billion, Alcatel $1.9 billion, and Lucent $1.2 billion on research and development each year. The question is whether they engage enough in basic research compared with the development of new products. 
Here, the situation might be less encouraging. It seems that to some degree, basic industrial research is declining. End quote. That was back in 2006, and we're sort of seeing the, the innovation landscape that comes out of this long-term decline now. So a big part of the issue here is that there's simply a misapprehension and a mythologization, uh, if that's a word, I think I've invented that, about where the real technical innovation comes from that makes entirely new industries possible. Much of the credit and funding goes to private companies that can commercially exploit these inventions, and we look on them as the source of innovators. We look to them to solve problems. The, the cult of the founder is a big part of this. You know, this is, People think of Steve Jobs as if he invented the uh, Apple computers and iPhones all by himself. It, it's not a single visionary genius. That's obviously a simplification that's used to sell things. And of course, it's not the case that all of the innovations that allowed the iPhone to exist came out of Apple, because they didn't. When the companies are good, then, they can find a way to make money from fundamental research and innovations. But when the companies are useless, like so many that SoftBank has invested in, they can just sell the story of innovation and technological supremacy to justify these inflated valuations. And we see this in the SoftBank Vision Fund from the very beginning. Structured as it is in this debt-driven way, with the requirement to deliver profits to its investors, it's pretending to be investing in the far-flung sci-fi future, the 30-year business model, but it's actually just chasing quick profits in this lopsided innovation ecosystem. And the real issue here, as McBride argues quite eloquently, is that venture capital has a very specific notion of the kinds of companies that can create the dramatic returns that they're looking for. They want to see something that can grow explosively, and for a lot of them that means software and not hardware. It means disrupting an existing industry and expanding to steal its existing profit base, while cutting costs because you're using an app and maybe some machine learning, instead of human labour and physical facilities. In other words, it means looking for the next Amazon. But if you are looking for something that resembles an existing business model, or disrupts an existing industry, you're making the exact same mistakes that a machine learning algorithm would do. These algorithms can only extract data from what they've already seen. They cannot actually predict or extrapolate outside of what they've seen. So there's no creativity here. Just as the algorithms will turn up search results of nerdy white guys when you search for tech CEO, so this is what the VC founders are often looking for. This is from McBride's article again. Quote, but some of the other inputs, either consciously or subconsciously, have been assumptions about the kind of person who can help generate outsized returns. The top founders all seem to be white male nerds who've dropped out of Harvard or Stanford and they absolutely have no social life, said John Durr of Kleiner Perkins, one of the most influential investors in the Valley, in 2008. So when I see that pattern coming in, it was very easy to decide to invest, he said. Perhaps this kind of bias about the expectations for what the next big tech company will be, that it will be software that can disrupt an existing industry and that will have this quirky eccentric founder, is part of what led SoftBank to make its big bets on companies like Uber and WeWork, which fit this profile, without really considering whether the business model was sustainable, regardless of whether or not it was actually trying to create some kind of social good for the general public, or whether there was even any innovative technology that was a sort of must-have underneath what they were doing. And the reality is that this is a very, very limited definition of what innovation and what technology can do and what it can be. You're geared towards creating these lost leader companies that want to replace industries with apps. In some areas, you can make money doing so, even though you throw people out of work in the process. In other areas, the margins are too tight. Expanding as quickly as the venture capitalists want you to, think of Son telling the WeWork founder that he wasn't ambitious enough, is going to lead you to disaster and you'll just burn through a lot of cash and put a lot of people out of business trying to establish a monopoly. And then you have to sell yourself as more innovative and futuristic than you really are, because real developments take a great deal of time and engineering. This again is from the McBride article. She writes, quote, People who really study innovation systems realise that VC might not be a perfect model for all of them, says Carol Dahl, executive director of the Lemelson Foundation, which supports investors and entrepreneurs building physical products. In the United States, she says, 75% of venture capital goes to software. Some 5-10% to goes to biotech. A tiny handful of venture capitalists have mastered the longer art of building a biotech company. The other sliver goes to everything else, everything physical. Transportation, sanitation, healthcare, etc. Dahl has told me about a company that has developed reusable protective gear when Ebola emerged and was now slowly ramping up production. What if it had been supported by venture funds earlier on? 
well, they would have made money out of it because that sort of protective gear is going to be extremely valuable now. But that's not going to happen. Ashin Chandner, a partner at Greylock, a leading VC firm, told her, quote, money is going to flow where returns are. So how can that change, writes McBride. The government could turn on the firehose again, restoring that huge spur of investment that got Silicon Valley started in the first place. In his book, Jumpstarting America, MIT professor Jonathan Gruber found that although total US spending on R&D remains at 2.5% of GDP, the share coming from the private sector has increased to 70%, up from less than half in the early 1950s through the 1970s, when many of the innovations that have allowed us to have things like solar panels and the internet now actually came in. Federal funding for R&D as a share of GDP is now below where it was in 1957, according to the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. In other words, the private sector, with its focus on fast profits and familiar patterns, now dominates America's innovation spending. That, Dahl and others argue, means the biggest innovations cannot find their long paths to widespread adoption. We've replaced breakthrough innovation with incremental innovation, says Rob Atkinson, founder of the ITIF. And thanks to Silicon Valley's excellent marketing, we mistake these incremental investments for breakthroughs. In his book, Gruber lists three innovations that the US has given away because it didn't have the infrastructure to bring them to market. Synthetic biology, hydrogen power, and ocean exploration. In most cases, companies in other countries commercialised the research because America's way of, of investing in ideas hadn't worked. So when we think about the great technological innovations throughout human history, harnessing the atom, the power of electricity, telecommunications, aircraft, photovoltaics, the internet, all these things, we start with some very early stage experimentation that was never going to justify itself on a commercial or financial basis. All of these cases flowed either from government, from private individuals with money and time to do whatever they wanted, or occasionally from things like Bell Labs where they had plenty of time and money to work on new projects and no one really minded as long as they did something new. And eventually they flourished into entire industries. But an app is never going to become an industry. For all the talk of disruption, that's all it is, trying to come along and push out someone who's already there, rather than creating anything new and revolutionary. So the blinkered notions of what tech companies are, how they should behave and what they should look into, these notions of the only things that can count as innovation and the only things that can make money, are arguably holding us back and putting way too much capital in these bets that end up being bad ideas, like the SoftBank bets, or don't have any real potential to transform society in the way that people like Masaoshi Son say that they're trying to do. And then, to add insult to injury, because they're bad ideas, lots of them fail to even make money for the people who invest in them. And you can see the gap between rhetoric and reality when it comes to so many of these companies and these investments, the fact that a great deal more patience is often required before anything is ready. Either the pronouncements are over-ambitious and you end up with a bunch of robots making pizzas filled with metal shavings, or endless claims that exaggerate how close self-driving cars are to fruition, or the claim to be innovative is just spurious or overblown, and you end up with companies that aren't really tech companies, but just pose as them. So we have a huge waste of potential in terms of the money then, but it's not just the money, of course it's not. There is a vast waste of time and intellectual resources in these exercises. The engineers who have to spend all day building software that ends up being useless. The enthusiastic young people who move into a tech industry in Silicon Valley, but then realise that it can't innovate to provide people with the things that they need. The rhetoric about changing the world versus the reality of chasing venture capital funding and businesses that are being propped up by the same. In many ways, it occurs in just the same way that the finest minds of my generation are being set to figure out how to more effectively serve ads to particular people, rather than doing anything more important, because that's what the market demands. I remember going to the machine learning conference ICML in 2019. It's one of the two big machine learning conferences that's held every year. The machine learning for climate change and AI for social good were the main events that I attended there. But compared to the other shows on, many of which were related to advertising and problems adjacent to advertising, they were in pretty small rooms. The attendance was small, but enthusiastic for them. We can do this better. The paper that came out of the conference had hundreds of ideas for ways that actual machine learning tools might be deployed to help solve societal problems, but instead a lot of this intellectual might is being devoted towards serving up ads because this is where the capitalism comes from. That's not to say that everything at ICML was rubbish. There was lots and lots of very good fundamental research going on there, but then when it comes to the applications... That's where you have to question it. And when the arm of your system that is supposed to be inventive, creative, risk-taking, bold, looking towards the future, when that arm that's supposed to be 
funding the future of uh, innovation and it spends five times as much on a robot pizza delivery system than it does on anything to do with finding alternative sources of energy that won't run out and don't choke the planet. When those are the priorities that you have, you can't tell me that the system isn't broken. The system is broken. And it's funneling time and resources towards things that don't matter when there's so many fundamental problems that we have yet to solve, that it would be better for everyone, investors included, if we did solve. This backlash against Silicon Valley has been building in the last few years. But I think the COVID-19 pandemic has really exposed a lot of people and accelerated the backlash against the innovators and entrepreneurs who yammer on about saving the world from superintelligent AI and colonising Mars and so on. When the crisis came, it showed up the massive flaws in our society and what we had been prioritising for so long. What we needed was healthcare, infrastructure, pandemic preparedness, plans for surveillance and monitoring of an illness that could be put in place to nip it in the bud. This was all extremely predictable. We all know that. I mean... (laughs) Two or three years ago, we did an episode that was talking about potential for pandemics and bioengineered pandemics. If I can see it, then the people who actually study this stuff can definitely see it. Instead, in the US, for the first month or so, the CDC couldn't even tell you how many tests had taken place, although it was likely in the low hundreds. Here in the UK, the government abandoned testing in the community after the first few hundred cases had been observed because they didn't have the capacity to do it. We had to try and rebuild a test and trace system later on. Despite the many warnings from scientists that another coronavirus could spread into humans, just like SARS and MERS had done in previous decades, the SARS vaccine research was abandoned when this disease was wiped out because it wouldn't have made a profit. Well, Uber and WeWork haven't made profits either, but they somehow haven't found it hard to come by billions of dollars. Perhaps if that SARS research had accelerated the ability to develop a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, it would currently be one of the best bets made in history, economically speaking. That would have been a daring venture, and a useful one, but as described, the money is going into the software instead. Even in the areas that our current infrastructure of innovation should supposedly help, it failed to deliver. The apps that were going to help us track and trace contacts with the virus weren't ready in time, or in many nations at all. Even simple things, like the data for testing, were being recorded, transmitted and stored in inefficient and incorrect ways. In the UK, for example, we've simply given up on recording how many people have been tested although not how many tests there are, because we can't find out that information. The data pipelines are leaky. So it's not just that the current innovation ecosystem ploughs lots of money and smart people and intellectual effort and careers into bad ideas, but it's come up empty when it actually comes to solving the problems we want it to solve. Despite all the talk of vision for the future, something as eminently predictable as a pandemic left us reaching for the tools to deal with it. And yes, of course, it's not all the fault of Silicon Valley. Governments have to take the blame in terms of what they funded and encouraged as well. I'm sure that people listening to this know that I wouldn't deny that. It's a society-wide problem, of which VC is just one of the most egregious aspects of it. All this without mentioning, of course, that the ventilators, hurriedly manufactured by various different tech companies, didn't work either. So you can list a thousand problems that we should be solving with this time, money and effort, but we simply weren't going to happen. And that's one reason to be mad about the waste of the Vision Fund. I also think we need to take into account the fact that replacing people with software, as a lot of these disruptive industries and tech companies aim to do, it happens for its own reasons and it has its own inevitable impacts. So we know that if you have this venture capital driven model of funding developments into technology and this way of defining tech companies, you are inevitably going to have tech companies seeking to scale and move into profit by going into new industries. We know that they'll do it by replacing people with software. How do we know this? Because software has this glorious property that is very easy to scale up and replicate. You can make a tweak to an app in a single office on your laptop and it can be spread around the world near instantaneously if desired. The cost of copying a piece of software is minuscule once everyone has all of the hardware that's required to do it. The same thing can't be said for physical infrastructure. And of course, paying a handful of software engineers to update a program that automatically does X is vastly less expensive than paying hundreds of people to do X. There is always going to be a temptation to replace people with software, but this doesn't always mean that software can do the job any better, although the focus on big data emphasises the idea that every problem can be solved with the liberal application of loads of data, loads of hardware, that's monitoring stuff, and a few machine learning algorithms on the top, and that will instantly give you better insights or decisions for any given problem, Uh, whether it's something as subtle and human-oriented as hiring and firing people, or 
directing traffic systems or planning cities or whatever that that's the aim here that's the uh, the ultraism that all you need to do is to plow these things into machine learning algorithms which we then define as artificial intelligence so that we think they're just like us in the way that they think when actually they're not we 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 do know that that this big data framing is going to emphasize the idea that you can solve every problem like this and that software can always do jobs better than people. Now, we do know that there are lots of use cases where using software to do things is, of course, infinitely more efficient. In the same way as using robotic labor to do basic and repetitive tasks is infinitely more efficient. I remember uh, tangentially a story of a friend of mine who got hired by a library once to uh, copy loads and loads of data that was in Word documents into Excel spreadsheets. And they'd been doing this manually by like manually copying each cell or typing each cell and so on. And uh, they figured that, well, it takes us an hour to do a sheet, so it's probably going to take this kid all summer, you know, six weeks of work to do this thing. Um, he wrote a little macro, a little uh, software program for Microsoft Office that did the task automatically. And in the course of two days, he'd completed what was supposed to take six weeks. But they paid him anyway. So it's an example of a case where actually, uh, for once, you can replace yourself with software and succeed. And we do know, of course, that, that there's lots of cases where the task is basic and repetitive, like the one that my friend was trying to do, where it is going to be infinitely more efficient. But it should also be clear that we have to be very careful about assuming that a world run by algorithms and machines is inherently superior. We know that algorithms themselves can automate and increase inequality in society by concentrating profits for a small number of people who own the algorithm and who own the data that everyone uses, sure, but also in perpetuating inequalities that already exist when they're used for things like hiring and firing, prison recidivism and so on, which should be the domain of people. Because ultimately, as much as we might hype artificial intelligence and machine learning, what algorithms universally do what they have to do by their design is to reduce things down to single fungible metrics which can miss a great deal of nuance. They have to convert qualitative information into quantitative information. They operate mathematically, they cannot do anything else. This is how decisions on how good a person is, the social credit score, how employable they are, higher view, how likely they are to commit crimes, in the case of the recidivism software, how likely you are to fall in love with them, in the case of something like OKCupid, always end up being reduced to a single impenetrable number. The algorithms are unbelievably efficient at producing these numbers and these decisions. They can also be fantastically bad at explaining how they came to these decisions. They can also make terrible decisions, which are covered up by our misplaced faith in the precision of technology and AI to generate insights that no human could possibly come up with. After all, if it's driven by vast huge amounts of data from a big array of sensors, surely it must know what's better for us more than we do. It knows more than we do. But of course it's not as simple as that. And in the meantime, for better or worse, the rapid expansion of this kind of software is automating away people's jobs and the industries that develop this kind of technology. As much as they talk about solving great social problems, taking humans to space, ensuring the future of our species and so on, they seldom speak about that kind of problem. All of the near-term problems to these people, things like pesky things like climate change often are in this category, and of course the global inequality, that's something else that doesn't get a lot of talked about. I mean, these things are not as interesting and not as sexy as how do we control an AI or how do we colonise space or whatever. Now we've discussed this at length in our series on technology, inequality and global catastrophic risks. We've talked about how support for a UBI from various tech founders might just be there as an excuse. In their eyes, what they're doing is going to automate millions of jobs out of existence. But they need people who can continue to buy and pay for their products, and who aren't going to be so penniless that they decide to overthrow them in a revolution or vote in revolutionary politicians, and so they support basic income as a kind of bare minimum reform. You have to understand that politically savvy elites throughout history have done the same thing. Liberal reformers in Britain and Europe have often been motivated to provide concessions to what people want to avoid the spectre of a communist revolution that would overthrow them and take all their property. The irony here, of course, is that a lot of these Silicon Valley founders will push the responsibility for solving this particular problem onto the state, 
while avoiding taxes and regulations from the state that might actually come close to enabling them to pay for it. And this is why I think I'm broadly, I'm so critical of SoftBank's Vision Fund and this whole area of tech VC in general. I could have spent a whole bunch of episodes criticising other areas where people waste money or make money based on very dubious schemes. Finance in general, the defence industry, the money that gets paid to footballers, whatever, any, anything you like. There's plenty of places where I'm sure people would make similar arguments that you'd be better off spending the money on world hunger or something like that. But technology, technology is different. It's the modern day secular religion. Not just in the case of genuine singularitarians who are counting down the days until the general AI that they've been promised materialises out of a fog of algorithms and Python scripts, but for all of us. We anticipate that the positive changes in our lives are going to arise from changes in technology. They're going to come out of this sector of the economy. We are all bracing for the next set of great changes that we anticipate. The mass unemployment, self-driving cars, AI, robotics, whatever it might be. And of course, the tech sector is all too happy to encourage these rosy visions of the future, to hype up near-term space travel, Martian colonisation, superintelligent AI, and so on. Much like a SoftBank company and SoftBank working arm-in-arm to tell us that they're working to revolutionise X, Y, and Z. They want to sell us the future, and we want to buy it. Prior to the crash, many of us, myself included, at many times, gave SoftBank a pass or wrote excitedly about what the Vision Fund might be able to achieve. I wrote for many years for a website that was dedicated to hyping up technologies. And although my articles usually ended up with some variation of it's actually a lot more complicated than that and you shouldn't just be blindly hyped about it, the headlines were often glowing enough. That's how you get clicks, after all. Everyone in this ecosystem has their own set of incentives that causes them to talk about things in a certain way. We look to technology then to save us from the problems that exist in our society while we're overlooking solutions that might be less attractive but actually more important. Look at Japan as an example, seeking to rely on robots to get developed that will look after its ageing population, rather than, for example, encouraging immigration which might reverse the trend of the ageing population in that country. Look at our approach to mental health. Depression and anxiety are hugely on the rise, especially amongst young people. From 2005 to 2017, rates of depression have gone up by 52% in young people. Many have suggested that a large part of this is down to social media, which is crowding out face-to-face social interactions which we need, while encouraging people to present a perfect, Instagram-worthy lifestyle to the outside world. Now, I think there's definitely some truth to that. I think there's also definitely some truth to the fact that these things are discussed and talked about more, that perhaps the apparent increase in the rates of depression and anxiety are because more and more people are identifying uh, the same emotions and the same emotional state that people had in the past as depression and anxiety. That's certainly also true. But I'd also note that since I've started paying attention to the world around me, I've seen those who are nominally in charge fail time and again to tackle climate change, which is instead left as a problem for the next generations to clean up, as well as a disaster that they're told is going to befall them. I've seen those nominally in charge fail to address the rising tide of income and wealth inequality in society, and demonstrate little foresight to address the multiplying existential risks that have arisen, focusing instead on innovations that enrich a small number of tech billionaires at the expense of everyone else. I've seen a financial crisis and global depression caused by greed and speculation for which few were punished. I've seen a recovery that focused on assets and didn't reach everyone. And in my country, government austerity supposed as the solution, which led to the university education our parents got for free, lumbering us with mountains of debt that we're not ever expected to pay off. I've seen that, while my parents left that university education with worse grades from less prestigious institutions, they had dozens of job offers directly given to them that my colleagues and friends have applied for hundreds of jobs without success. I've seen house prices rise to become utterly unaffordable for anyone in my generation. I've seen the statistics that show we will be the first generation to be worse off than our parents in centuries. I've seen people in the media blame us for this, despite the fact that we drink less, take fewer drugs, commit less violent crime, and party less than previous generations did. 
Meanwhile, of course, in the great democratic exercises, in the elections, as our politics has become increasingly generationally divided for these socio-economic reasons, I have seen the interests of my generation beaten resoundingly time and again, in the UK general election, in the US general elections, and on the Brexit vote. And naturally, I've also witnessed the disastrous response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is far less dangerous to young people, but has sunk us into an even worse economic mire. In exchange for this, I have received a smartphone, which allows me to read more bad news stories at a faster rate, and the internet, which has at least made it easier to try and find distractions in fantasy land from a reality that is distinctly not going that well. Yeah, of course I appreciate that former generations had their problems as well, and that there have been recessions in the past, and that previous generations had to struggle to buy houses and get jobs when they were younger. I have no doubt about that. I'm sure also that during the height of the Cold War, people were terrified of being incinerated by nuclear weapons. And if you go back further, people genuinely did fight in global conflicts. Although I would remind people, of course, that the nuclear weapons still haven't gone away. So I suppose what I'd suggest is that there might be some actual concrete reasons that younger people are more depressed than ever, which don't just stem from increasing self-obsession, increasing awareness of the problem or cultural trends, or indeed the breakdown of earlier forms of community or family or religion that provided safety nets for people with these issues. But this is really another show. Nevertheless, regardless of the cause, regardless of how valid you might feel it is, issues surrounding mental health are on the rise and are either becoming or are being recognised as a serious societal problem. And if nothing else, we look to technology to make our lives better, easier. Plenty of the startups I've looked at in this area are seeking to develop some kind of robotic chatbot therapists. I did an episode about them recently, which may or may not end up being released. We have apps for meditation, and we have prescription drugs. This is the only way that the systems of innovation, driven by profits and what can be accomplished with what's seen as, as innovation, know how to solve problems. I mean... The idea is you have to disrupt the industry of therapy by getting an app that does it instead of a person. But if the reality simply is that the way we're all living, or the way that we're governing ourselves is making us miserable, is leading to all of this suffering, can tech, defined in this narrow way, really fulfil its promise of leading us to a brighter future? When you're promised Star Trek replicators that will make everything for you, but what you ultimately get is access to billions of YouTube videos, have you made a fair trade? When it comes to climate change, as I'll cover in much greater depth in other episodes, the positive futures that we've imagined increasingly depend on huge amounts of technological and technical innovation, even as the solutions that might actually help reduce emissions are taking the backseat to investments like Uber and WeWork. Now, we imagine that these big technological innovations, that technology that's going to come along and save us, is being generated by the system of technological development as it exists at the moment, but it's simply not. Negative emissions, for example. How much of the investment in SoftBank's Vision Fund and venture capital in general is coming up with negative emissions? At the moment, virtually none, because they don't see any way to profit for this solution. In all of these visions that are set forth of the future, then, how much of our imagination are we really devoting to solving the grand challenges that actually face us as a species? And how much of our imagination is just dedicated to imagining that we can create an app that will destroy another industry, or hype up another company into multi-billion dollar IPO unicorn fantasy land. When you can destroy the business model of half of SoftBank's investments by asking what problem they actually solve, or what service they actually provide that isn't provided already, you have to question whether we should have so much faith in our current ideas about innovation to solve everything. We romanticise the founders of these companies as building new empires, and often ignore, or downplay, the exploitative nature of the way that they do it. And because there's this feeling that we're so dependent on this growing sector to save us from all of our societal ills, that it is the future, that it represents the only vision of the future that we can have, we overlook when it does things that are stupid or have terrible societal impacts. Aside from maybe the European Union on occasion, no one seems willing to rein in the big tech companies because they've convinced us that they hold the keys to the future and that standing in their way is to stand in the way of innovation and progress. One exception here is China, which often seeks to replicate the same thing that these companies are doing, but with companies that are under the direct control of the government. But I don't think that really counts to you. I mean, it's not an improvement at all. The reason I'm so hard on the tech industry and the bubble it's become is because, like a lot of people should feel, I think, I'm disappointed. It's the disconnect between the lofty rhetoric of the tech companies and how their actions actually impact society. It's the disconnect between Masayoshi Son's baffling but fascinating PowerPoint presentation 
and what he actually invested in. It's the disconnect between the sci-fi, futuristic notion of tech in the sales brochure and the technology that's actually being worked on. It's the disconnect, in other words, between reality and the marketing material. And say what you like about footballers, but at least they tell you what they're doing. And the reason I feel disappointed is because deep down, I still feel like technology is going to be a big part of the answer. Being a Luddite or an anarcho-primitivist or whatever, that's not going to help. We all know that technology has resulted in vast improvements to our life on this planet. It's prevented us from dying at the age of 30. It's allowed me to talk to all of you through this show, hundreds of people I might never meet, when in a pre-technical age I'd know nothing and know even fewer people to tell it to. And I know that if we are going to find solutions to the growing set of problems that we face as a species, if we're going to find ways to make everyone's lives better and more worth living, technology and technological development is going to be a huge part of that. Heck, even market forces will of course have their role to play, as I witness the developments in solar power and wind and energy storage, which are finally driving fossil fuels out of power generation, and in many places, even as other sources of greenhouse gases remain. I still believe all of these things to be practically self-evident that we'll need technological development, but we cannot allow our shared belief in the crucial development of technology to blind us to the fact that the way technology progresses, the way that it changes, the way that it shapes the world, the things that we focus our time and energy on, is not inevitable. The things that we focus our time and energy on when we develop technology are not inevitable. The system of incentives that we set up to produce different kinds of innovation are not inevitable. They do not occur extrinsically to human decision-making processes. It is not external to the choices that people make. Whether these people are programmers, tech CEOs, people who come up with and pitch startups, people who write about those companies, the venture capitalists that invest in their companies, the government people who decide how much funding different projects get, all this sort of thing. Evolution will happen. That much is inevitable. But there's not just one type of technological progress. There's not just one way that things can evolve into the future. There's not one set of things we can prioritise. The way we choose to guide it, the things we choose to emphasise and prioritise and optimise for, the behaviours we reward and the behaviours we try to suppress, these things are not inevitable. They are choices that we make as people. The way that technology therefore develops is not just some linear straight line thing. It's down to choices that are made. And for far too long, I think we've been making a lot of the wrong choices. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, recently made the observation that economic growth, while the quality of life stagnates, is not progress. To which I think we can add that technological development, or the development of a technology industry that actively worsens quality of life for people, or that causes the quality of life to stagnate, is not progress either. And yet we maintain a great deal of faith that tech, or things that brand themselves as tech, are inevitable, profitable, and ultimately for the good of everyone. So the question I want to ask, and the final question for this series, is whether that faith is misplaced. And if so, how can we unblur SoftBank's vision, and the vision of our society more generally? One of the hardest things to do right now is to imagine a utopian future. The tech utopias of the Victorian age heck, even of Star Trek, have given way to an endless string of tech dystopias. Because deep down in our sort of creative selves, that's all we can imagine technology evolving as now. Why is that? Too often we struggle to imagine, with a straight face and without an eye on the wallets of investors, how technology is going to develop that will genuinely make society better, safer, or more worth living in. And this is why the story of SoftBank's blurry vision matters. It's because of what we lost in the hype. So how do we get that vision back? Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction and to the whole series that we've done on SoftBank. I know it's a little unusual for the type of thing that we do, but we talk about technology and science here as well as physics, as I'm sure everyone is getting used to now. If you have any comments, questions or concerns on the issues that have been raised, um, please get in touch with us via physicspodcast.com. The contact form is there. You know, I I pose these things as genuine questions. I'd like to know what people think about uh, the stories that I've outlined and the innovation sector in general, the tech sector in general, how these things can evolve, what you think they should prioritise, and 
Whether you think that this is a correct analysis or whether you have a different perspective, I would really love to hear it. So you can get in touch with us there, the physicspodcast.com, there's the contact form. Otherwise, you get in touch with us, of course, via Twitter, Facebook, Twitter at PhysicsPod, Facebook, Physical Attraction, using these big tech platforms as they still exist and still dominate so much of our media landscape, of course. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can support the show. Again, we have links there on PayPal and Patreon. You can get on both of those via the website physicspodcast.com. The Patreon, you'll have access to several bonus episodes, including a bonus episode for this particular series, which goes into more detail about Wirecard. Um, The way that that's set up is you don't pay for episodes until a new bonus episode is released. So actually by subscribing to it, you'll get access to like, I think five new bonus episodes, plus all of these SoftBank ones um, that are there at the moment for free. And you'll only pay a dollar or a couple of dollars when a new paid bonus episode is released. So it's a pretty good deal before a new bonus episode is released. And who knows how long it will take me to do that. Um, Until next time, then, of course, the most important thing you can do is take care.